folks, you are tuned in for another episode of Getting to the Root of It with Venus Roots. And in this new year, I'm so excited to get back into conversation, dialogue, learning from comrades, learning from folks that I admire, um, learning how artists are just envisioning this new world that we're fighting for. So, of course, very excited for today's guest. Welcome to the show, Fresco. Hey! Um, If you don't know who Fresco is, I guarantee you that you've probably um, either seen their work, wish that you could get your hands on something that has (laughs) their work, (laughs) Mm -hmm. and um, and if you really don't know, um, you're going to find out. Um, Again, welcome, Fresco. It's really, I'm happy that we're doing this. I feel like we've been trying to make it happen for a little minute. Mm Mm-hmm. So Fresco, talk to me a little bit about, again, so many folks know your work, right? Um, I've, I've shared with you, my favorite socks are something that you designed, right? With the <laughs> Panther, the defund the police, stop oh, killing yeah. black people. Mm-hmm. Um, I always have my defund the police mask on, you know, ready to start some shit. Thank you. Wants to say some shit, um, and there are just so many goodies, right? Like I've I've admired your work for so long, and sort of like the, the contribution it has for our movement. But I am curious, you know, I want to step back a little bit from just like the work and actually get to know a little bit more around who is Fresco, right? Like what brings you to this movement? What mm-hmm. are sort of the values that anchor you? And yeah, what moves you? What what makes you dream um yeah i am deeply committed to creating beautiful experiences for black people um that marginalized i'm deep committed i'm deeply committed in the value that uh marginalized folks deserve to experience beauty um right now in the present they marginalized folks should experience the world that we are dreaming of, that we're fighting for, that we're organizing towards. Marginalized folks should be experiencing that right now. Right now, we have an opportunity to embody, to experience the beauty of the world. And we don't have to uh, center ourselves in stress, struggle, trauma in a way that like we'll still be talking about our, our descendants are manifesting our freedom dreams. We deserve our freedom dreams right now. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, quote, I'm my ancestors' wildest dreams. I hope my ancestors were living some of their wildest dreams in their present and they didn't have to wait for me to come around and get some acupuncture for them to <laughs> manifest their <laughs> wildest experiences. Um, I think that that is rooted in my upbringing. I was born on the south side of Chicago, raised on the south side of Chicago, um, to a mom that was the first and greatest artist in my life. Um, she had me at an older age. She had me when she was 40, um, and she was going back to art school. Um, she ultimately got a, a master's degree um, in fine arts and education, early childhood education. And she spent her life uh, intersecting how do you do education um, of young people at fundamental ages rooted in art. And I think that that's the value that drives me is how can we, how can we 
uh, analyze the culture of Black folks? How can we intersect that uh, with design and beauty? Um, and then how do we also intersect that with political education uh, to support collective consciousness in order to move folks to take action? And that's been my work uh, probably over the past six years. Thank you. Wow. That's so beautiful. I mean, it's really beautiful hearing you talk about your mom and sort of their contribution. Because for me, like I hear that, I'm like, oh, shit, okay. Like continuing the legacy. I see you. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I didn't always know. I didn't always know that I was continuing that legacy. Mm. Uh, I would say that, um, yeah, you know, I grew up a young black queer kid and she was definitely pan-african she was also israelite i grew up in i grew up a hebrew israelite so basically in a cult y'all know the motorcycle men <laughs> on the little <laughs> the motorcycle men on the uh podiums being like shut up black woman you're walking with that white man <laughs> <laughs> you're going to hell yeah those wild folks my mom was actually uh uh in uh a hebrew israelite when she was younger and then we turned to a different camp of israelites that's important because teenage years uh i was navigating two things i was navigating escaping from this cult of a religion and navigating all my religious trauma while mm. being uh, while also discovering and expanding uh, my queer identity uh, in a house with a homophobic mom. So I ultimately at 16 and 17 ended up being um, homeless and one of those homeless mm -hmm. queer youth folks talk, talk about. Um, and I think that's, yeah, I think that's super important in thinking about um, how I rejected art because my mom spent all her time doing art uh, and, mm. she, and it was fundamental to my upbringing. Um, and then at some point I would say in my late teenage years, I started to resent it. And I would also explore this organizing career. So I started organizing when I was 14. And so at, at 17, it's three years in, you know, I'm cursing everybody out. Systemic <laughs> <I'm like, laughs> racism. And so, those things are compounding religious trauma, queer identity, being homeless and the conditions I was living in, and also coming to consciousness around my conditions. And that made me push back on, on art and be like, I need to devote myself to organizing, to building towards liberation, to the struggle. And artists, they lack political analysis. And so I can't actually be engaged in that. Well, secretly, it was about resenting how it felt like it took my mom away. Mm. And so, yeah, I feel like after she passed, actually, uh, when I was 19 was when I actually, yeah, when I actually got to dive in and say, oh, everything I actually do is a reflection of all the things my mother taught me and all the things, my all the values that my mother developed into me very young. Wow, that's a lot. It's, yeah, it's it's so powerful, though, to I think so many of us in our in our sort of coming of self and like coming of age and also like all the things that come with that. Right. Like the trauma acknowledgement. Mm -hmm. um, so many of us are being tasked to um, transform our understanding of a lot of folks that might have hurt us. A yeah. lot of folks that also were tasked with, 
you know, handling all the things of the world and also raising us mm-hmm. and teaching us what love might be or sometimes not. Um, yeah. yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot. Mm-hmm. But I, I really appreciate that sort of like naming of, okay, what's actually happening? What the, How did that resentment manifest? And then how, you know, years later, so many years later, I mean, not that many years later, but, you know, years <laughs> later, here you are so embodied in what a cultural worker does, what a cultural worker offers. Um, I do want to hear a little bit more about this because I'm, if I'm honest, and I think a lot of folks know this, I sometimes have been caught up in that binary. I'm like, yo, artists be grifting. Like they be saying the revolutionary rhetoric, but they don't even want to come to the meetings. They don't want to do the work. Mm-hmm. It's much easier to just post the shit, you know, do the mm-hmm. cute stuff. You know, I, I've been in that and really uh-huh. like, existed in that binary and had a lot of frustration and also like resentment, you know, thinking of like, oh, that's easier. That's less important. That is less revolutionary. Mm -hmm. And I think ironically, the more I've learned of revolutionary struggle, especially in the global South, Mm -hmm. it clicked. It's like, oh no, like we actually need um, to cut through cultural hegemony. And we also need our artists. We need our storytellers. We need our poets to be rooted in struggle, to be in relationship, to be in camaraderie with these folks that we, you know, that might be organizing. But mm-hmm. want to hear a little bit more around how you're navigating that tension, right? Like we know it's not a binary, but mm-hmm. how how has that sort of unfolded for you? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I think that inherently organizers are designers organizers are artists and they don't know it they don't and they don't necessarily approach it in that way uh, I feel like if um, if organizers could acknowledge that they are artists and artists could acknowledge that their goal their responsibility is to organize uh, we would we would meet somewhere a lot of folks would meet somewhere in the middle and none of those people, just like we said just now, no, none of those none of those identities are mutually exclusive. And so when I say we might meet somewhere in the middle, in my spirit, I had to meet somewhere in the middle with those two identities that I thought potentially were separate but are actually intertwined. Uh, and so for me, um, I feel like there's a dilemma. Um, one thing that I learned from Black organizing for leadership and dignity was the difference between problems and dilemmas. Uh, problems are something to be explicitly solved. Dilemmas are something that we make that infinity sign. We ebb and flow through back and forth. Mm-hmm. A dilemma is something that's always going to be there forever that we have to figure out how to navigate. It's not something that will be solved. And sometimes we treat dilemmas, especially in movement space, we treat dilemmas um, like problems that we will find a solution to and not something to navigate the contradiction back and forth. And so for me, um, it is a dilemma that when folks, uh, when that folks largely uh, develop art uh, and space in disconnection from the history of struggle um, of marginalized folks and thus start to build a craft around art uh, that might feel disconnected and doesn't and doesn't include um, a strong political analysis of the conditions. When so many folks, Angela Davis, Tony K. Bambara, talk about um, t- t- Tony Morrison, talk about art as a vehicle 
to bring people to political consciousness. It is so, um, when I think about the first um, organizer training I got probably at 16, 17, it was a Midwest Academy joint. Mm-hmm. I remember when I told my mom that I was going to start organizing, um, she bought me the book Rules for Radicals. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and so, uh, Alinsky, Alinskyist organizing, I would say, um, is doesn't necessarily offer as much expansive room um, for you to understand the role of cultural organizing in it. And what's also prevalent is you have to learn Black organizing models. If you're talking about slave rebellions, uh, if you're talking about the Haitian Revolution, you're talking about Black folks, cultural organizers meeting in the middle of the night and using spirituality, using oral tradition, um, and using all of these different mechanisms that might not be some traditional organized, considered traditional organizing strategy, um, because traditional organizing strategy largely when folks fundamentally start interacting with it is often white supremacist. Um, but for me, it's important to know that when you start learning black organizing practices, uh, the organizing history of Latinx folks and things like that, you actually start to get expansive with that. And so for me, I think that I think that organizing Organizing and political action has to has to, what we've learned and have to acknowledge is that organizing has to include art. It has to include culture. It has to include design um, and the cultural anchors. And and art has to include some political analysis of the conditions in the same way that artists try to figure out how can I speak to the moment? How can I be relevant? You should be always speaking to the moment politically because nothing nothing is not political. Nothing is apolitical. Right. Yep. Nothing is apolitical, even if folks, you know, some for, for folks in convenience, we want to sort of frame it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'm thinking a lot of just, you know, the idea that artists and culture and all the manifestations of culture, right? There's so much here. Like there's mm-hmm. the visual, the film, the music, the religion, the spirituality, the ritual, mm-hmm. the embodiment of that. Mm-hmm. We know that the status quo we know that capitalism, we know that white supremacy and all of its tentacles, you know, they are they have figured out for a long time that culture is very important, right? Uh-huh. Like they have been telling us the narrative. They have been telling us yeah. what's possible. They've been normalizing, you know, the shit we're in for so long. Mm-hmm. So, I, you know, I always challenge myself. It's like, yeah, the idea that this, you know, that we wouldn't have to present alternative visions or even just like grounding our folks in where we've been and where we're headed. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's foolish at best, you know? It's like, mm-hmm. come on now. Yeah. <laughs> like, we know the other side, like they've been doing it. Absolutely. Are there are there specific artists, are there specific cultural workers that really come to mind when, that who, manif- who sort of embody this tradition of just like really holding us down mm-hmm. into like a sliver of the new world or reminding us where we've been? <laughs> Yeah, I think about Tony K. Bambara and I think about Audre Lorde. Uh, really, really, I often think about writers um, because for me, um, <clears throat> yeah, for me, art is nothing without a story. 
So for me, storytellers inspire me. Like um, the recent things I did with Levi's, if I just did those things, I probably played myself <laughs> because I probably should have explicitly said, what I'm doing here is design and communications and storytelling, right? Um, but it was like, oh, Fresco is the designer. But each one of the things that I've ever met, and even beyond Levi's, the the design work that I did with BRP 100, um, the movement for Black Lives this past year, all of that, it has to come with a story. And if it doesn't come with a story, um, then it, it truly doesn't mean anything. It will only last as long as you like it, find it visually appealing, and it as long as it aligns with the current trend of aesthetic and beauty. Um, everything, everything that you've kept for years uh, that might not be cool, so you keep it in the closet, it's because it has a story behind it. Um, culture for me is about, is around anchors that connect people, that connect mm -hmm. to people and provide a sense of belonging. Uh, to folks. And so the folks that I look up to, of course, people always talk about Emory Douglas and the way that he was able to use design to enhance the political education work uh, that the Black Panther Party was doing. I think the Young Lords had a visual identity um, and a uh, uh, yeah, a visual identity and a cultural identity that enhanced their ability to communicate around the struggle, um, around the struggle and for Latinx folks, uh, for Puerto Rican folks uh, specifically, uh, I look at hip hop. Um, I would say Tony K. Bambara and Audrey Lord because I think that uh, they did a lot for the Black feminist radical tradition, right? And one thing I care about is um, how th how that we are pa how we are passing the story that feminism. Uh, for me, it was invented, facilitated by Black women, um, especially when we're talking about, you know, uh, a lot of young white women want to say intersectional feminism. If you're talking about intersectional feminism, like Black women had to walk next to those white feminists and say, hey, y'all are trying to get jobs because y'all are tired of being homemakers in your home. I'm literally trying to not be exploited at my job that I work for you. Uh, so that I can be at home with my children. Uh, there are so many other pieces of my identity that are uh, creating this experience of oppression for me than what you are acknowledging. And so uh, when people talk about, oh, it's no problem being a womanist, but when people say I'm a womanist because of the history of feminism, I'm like, oh, there's some oral traditions, there's some stories uh, that you haven't heard from Audre Lorde, uh, Barbara Smith, Tony K. Bambara, Be Beverly Guy Sheftall around uh, the different waves of feminism led by Black women. And so I would say storytellers throughout across marginalized communities are who inspire me. Yes, 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 yes. As I'm hearing you say these names and just uplift these folks, I'm thinking a lot of about how there's so many pieces of their stories that are, you know, um, we get the excerpts, we get the little snippets, right? Like there, there isn't always a concerned effort to really give folks these space of just like, what did they actually offer us, right? Like, what were they actually mm -hmm. saying? What were they warning about, us about? And I think also another piece of that is also like a lot of these folks yeah. 
And this is a tradition, you know, a lot of these folks are also black communists and black socialists and black Mm -hmm. anti-capitalists and very explicitly so. Mm -hmm. And then here we are decades later, kind of like totally, you know, cutting that part out, right? Being like, oh, no, no, there was no class analysis. There was no analysis around exploitation, you know, Mm -hmm. because of capitalism. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that's something coming up for me because, you know, it, it even makes me think of the sort of the Fred Hampton movie, which I still mm-hmm. have not watched, but you know how how also the culture of the status quo and of the mainstream and of you know certain people, certain groups, the elite, how they can sort of even wrap like repackage our own stories for mm-hmm. mass consumption, but mm-hmm. by devoiding it and diluting it of some of the you know the most present traditions politics right yeah absolutely yeah hmm well I love the folks that you definitely you mentioned like just thinking around like their different poems different stories Mm -hmm. visuals I should also say Ntozaki Shange uh I I say that because I'm sitting here on my desk I'm like I mentioned all these folks and this is actually (laughs) her obituary and you see you see her face how she's looking at me <laughs> I was like no, I didn't say Ntozaki's name um I, and I feel like when people ask me that question they also they would think like oh Basquiat or all of these different artists and <laughs> things like that and I would say that like um there was a way that in the 90s I would say folks like Basquiat were able to like fuck the system of white supremacist standards of fine art and actually mess that system up in a way that for me felt deeply anti-capitalist and is a reflection of a possibility model for how we could not enter institutions and transform them, but how can we actually start um, building art and pieces of culture that these institutions chase after, um, like the the movie industry, all of these different art and design industries are like preying on young black and brown queer uh, artists and cultural workers in this moment. And how do we actually build a strategy that flips um, their capitalist strategies on their head and tells the authentic stories of um, of our people, of our communities, of what's at stake and what's our vision for the future. Um, I think about that with the with the Levi's campaign I was able to do. I, I really uh, snuck through and they supported it. Uh, I have to say that they supported it. I really, uh, I really with fear and trembling was like, Black people invented denim, and I was very excited about that. That was my mo- that was my most exciting and favorite part was actually get to get to talk about how Black folks actually invented denim in the way that they would love to tell you. Not Levi's, the white supremacy would love to tell you that John Wayne or some cowboy in the West or the folks at the Gold Rush invented denim. That's just not true. <laughs> I'm like okay. You know where where do we even go from there, right? Like where do we even go from there? <laughs> but I, um, you know, and I said it earlier, very shamelessly. There's so much. There's just so much dope um, pieces and and just emblems of of movement slogans um, that mm-hmm. you've created and designed and sort of envisioned around my house, right? And that I also kind of just like am wearing regularly, or you know. Mm-hmm. 
and making a lot of intentionality, right? Oh, I'm going to go camping. There's going to be a lot of certain type of folks. Let me put these socks on so people know it's tea. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, oh, there's like this very gentrified food hall. Let me pull up with the defund the police. Just right. to, you know, just disrupt people's comfort in the bullshit for a little moment. Um, I would love to hear a little bit about what have been some of the most joyful and exciting projects obviously i know the levi's most recently but you know you've done so much over the last couple of years like what are some moments that you're like damn i still love that you know i still love that design or like oh my god that's so funny that that came out of that conversation or the dream Mm -hmm. you know what are some that just bring you like the fuzzy feels still yeah i would say more more recently um well i i should say uh one of the terms i was honored to be able to develop within BRP 100 was uh, unapologetically black. And I think in 2013, uh, we, had, we had seen the years before the um, killing of Oscar Grant, we were working through uh, the killing of Trayvon Martin um, and and the, the Zimmer, Zimmerman uh, not facing any accountability. Um, I would locate some of those uh, phenomenons of political political uprise um, due to Black death as some of the focal points that ignited uh, the movement uh, for Black lives. And when I say the movement for Black lives, I'm not just talking about the organization, I'm talking about the expansive organizing across this country and world uh, that was done in service to Black liberation. And I think, um, and I think in 2013 and 14, 2014, we see uh, Mike Brown killed uh, by the police. It was, I remember when BFP 100 first started, this this might be a tangent. Uh, I remember being in DC, uh, holding a black space. Uh, probably, it was probably at Roots Camp, if anybody remembers uh, Roots Camp. But I remember us coming in and being like, uh, this is a black space. We are creating an exclusively black space uh, to process the experiences and conditions of black folks, make space for black joy and organize and talk about what it will take to organize around black liberation. And black people started whispering, they're like, we can do that. We can have a black only space. It was 2013, y'all. And we were like, yes. So if you do not identify as black, we would ask that you please leave. And there were some white folks. <laughs> there were some white folks in that space that were just sitting and were like, oh, oh my God. I never been asked to leave us leave a space. What happened to multicultural cross-movement justice? And so literally we had to ask probably like three times. And black people felt in 2013, black people felt so uncomfortable that were largely in nonprofit space and political movement space felt so uncomfortable because so many so many spaces were like workers of the world unite or so many spaces were like we're about white supremacy and as people of color we all need to fight the white and so it was there weren't some explicit spaces for black folks uh, and I think that's something that BFP 100 was able to offer in that time. Exclusive spaces for Black folks to process trauma, to talk about what's at stake for our communities and build uh, build political self-determination and build political power. And so in that, in that year, I think 
Black folks wearing a shirt that said unapologetically Black to their white workplaces, to the store. People people felt so threatened by just the words, we have to put defund police on now. We have to say, <laughs> burn it down, burn down the prisons for people to be really surprised or people to be really jarred. But in 2013, we li- simply put unapologetically Black on a shirt and people get all types of looks in the airport and just Black people loved it. And Black people are living it up. And, and it really matters to me to build things that Black folks can wear to feel unapologetic in their Blackness, unapologetic in their experiences, and feel like they're supported by a whole crew of people across this country that share their values and that they are emboldened. They're not alone in the way that they feel about our conditions. And so when you walk outside with that defund police mask, you know that you're not alone, that there's a whole network of people across this country with that same mask, having the same conversations in the corner store. And your decision is whether you feel like having those conversations today, because when you put it on, (laughs) you know what you're you're about to go through. (laughs) Yeah. And I think that that is, that's also cool. Like, if you decide to wear one of the things that I create, you know that that's a day you're deciding to do some organizing work because you're going to have to have, you can't wear that jacket that says uh, destroy fascism, defund police without going into a store. And it's like, you want to do what? (laughs) (laughs) And so, and actually having a conversation where you have a responsibility to move that person further to the left and get them curious around how they can join political struggle, wherever it is for them. Yes. I'm thinking, you know, hearing you talk, I was like laughing because, you know, last week I was wearing the mask and, and, you know, this woman's like, I I love how bold you are. Uh, (laughs) I was like, I mean, not all the time, you know, I'm not going to wear this every day, but you know, it is a choice. It is a choice. You got to call it sometimes. There's a hat. Uh, I made a hat that says uh, just big bold letters, BFP 100, FTP hat. Mm-hmm. There's one that's in denim. The green is my favorite, but everybody's favorite is actually the tropical vacation looking one. It's like the, it's like a Hawaiian tropical, uh, like one of those t-shirts old men wear to Hawaii, but it just has FTP embroidered on it. It's really cool. It's a mindfuck for sure. And One day I decided to put it on and I was actually traveling and I did not know, I used to live in DC. I did not know that it was the um, National Association of Police. They were meeting that Mm -hmm. weekend in Washington DC. So I go to the airport and the entire airport is filled with police officers and like with police shirts. police officers from every state just Mm -mm. flooding in to talk about how they're going to tase and kill black and brown folks. And so um, I had to wear that. It was just nowhere I could put it. I was having a bad hair day. It was just on. And and so that just reminded me, you know, I got the looks, I got the, (laughs) they couldn't really do anything, but it reminded me that every day you put on something that I've created, it is, you are opting into organizing, uh, truly. And that's what they were created for, to be organizing tools. 
Yeah. yeah. It's I mean, it's funny. I, I wear the mask to my parents' house and, you know, then we get into it. I mean, you know, <laughs> thankfully it's not like they're too, too, too far. Uh-huh. But, you know, you know, the older generation, they're like, oh, what do you mean? I like, you mean defund, defund? I'm like, yes, that's what it says, baby. Yeah. I think I think it's also it's also an agitation for us, too, I hope, um, mm-hmm. because I can't if I wear that mask. I better have an answer prepared. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's and because um, I would say within the bubble of movement space, abolition feels like a trendy conversation. There are a series of trendy conversations that people attach themselves onto um, that don't that it when people are in conversation, it doesn't necessarily feel like they have the whole thing figured out. Yep. Um, and so when you wear that mask, I hope that you have uh, actual explanation prepared for how you're going to create safety uh, for the communities of marginalized folks. Because you're not just using that mask to confront white supremacy, to confront uh, policing. You're using that mask to get Black folks curious around what it would mean to reallocate those funds, to think what what supports us? Actually, what, what does stop people from harming people? Uh, like I love to, I love to just throw a bomb in those conversations and say, when Black people are like, "What about crime?" I love to throw the bomb. Crime is a myth. <laughs> crime is a construct of white supremacy. There are so many things. There are so many um, mechanisms of harm that aren't considered a crime, and there are so many. There are so many things that are considered crimes that are actually uh, just white supremacist ways of policing marginalized folks. And so I just truly, I truly hope that like we can offer black folks, our parents, our cousins, our aunts, some solutions to how we are prepared to collectively keep each other safe. Uh, Especially what I care about, patriarchal violence, sexual violence, uh, domestic violence and abuse, like what is your response? Um, and so, yeah, I, I truly have to say that because um, there are so many times that conversation, in the past year, I've seen that conversation not provide those uh, solutions. And the, and, and, and the only way that we bring Black folks into the conversation is to actually get them curious around what type of protection can we build collectively between each other in situations that feel as scary as patriarchal violence. Mm-hmm. I'm glad you said that. I'm actually having a workshop later today on abolition. And you know, to your point, it's one of the, it's just, it's so trendy right now. Like people mm-hmm. are just like, wait, what do you mean? There's a whole network, a whole movement of abolitionists. Like, let's mm-hmm. get into it, you know? And mm-hmm. institutions are are hungry for it. Mm-hmm. You know, all types of institutions, you know, folks mm-hmm. want it, right? Mm-hmm. And you know, I was I was having this conversation with um Derek Pernell earlier, you know, a few days ago, and I was like, yeah, this is actually an opportunity for us to not just you know be like, oh, we want abolition, but also offer folks like these are all the the things that we're being stripped from, right? Like talking about austerity, talking about our safety net being decimated, mm-hmm. and how, like what does that rebuilding look like? You know, what does it look like if we have multi multi million dollar budgets to actually fund after school programs to mm-hmm. fund de-escalation trainings amongst our communities to fund infrastructure to fund just outdoor spaces where folks can you know like 
actually just be out and not be policed? How do we like fund our public schools again and have mm-hmm. these programs kind of just baked into the institution? And so many, so many, so many other things, right? Mm-hmm. I appreciate you saying that because yeah, it, there's a lot, a lot of hot takes about abolition right now. Not a lot of, and and the, the part of it too is there's a lot of folks that have been organizing and experimenting and and been in praxis for some mm-hmm. time now. Like there's actually lessons that we can harvest from folks. You know, it's mm-hmm. not abolition didn't just like come out of nowhere, right? You know this, we know this, um, and yeah, I think I think folks need to like embody a little bit more humility around like oh, oh shit like where can what can we learn from black trans folks that have been keeping each other safe right what can we learn from sex workers who are very clear like we never call the cops right like we what mm-hmm. have those networks look like like what has anchored them um and mm-hmm. you know undocumented folks who again are clear we don't we don't go to the state for safety mm-hmm. it's it's a, it's a non solution um, yeah, there's just so many folks. Mm-hmm. And you and you cannot arrogantly sit and say, uh, defund the police. There's some class reflection and class analysis for me in the current organizing spaces where people are get, are saying defund the police and they're not giving people, they're not following up with any explanations around safety. Like when I was 14 and organizing to shut down the Audi home, uh, the juvenile detention center in Chicago, we had a parallel campaign to organize to build a clinic. Uh, Because Mm -hmm. if you're talking about defunding the police, are you getting the paramedic training? Now, absolutely. The very truth is police absolutely do exponentially more harm the current system of healthcare does exponentially more harm to our people than provide safety. It's also the norm and tradition that our communities are used to. And so when I say defund police, I actually have a responsibility to say, and I'm prepared to build and invest in and do my shift in a community-led trauma center in my community to make sure that when violence happens, because folks are not saying, abolish violence uh, in the same way, (laughs) in the same way that I'm fully prepared to respond to harm um, and respond to trauma. I actually am, because I'm an abolitionist, I'm going to go get paramedic training so I can be a first responder in my community around somebody with a stab wound, a gunshot wound, somebody. I am going and dedicating my life to de-escalation training because I want to be the interrupter of domestic violence, of patriarchal violence. And so, yeah, I I just deeply care about when going back to when people are wearing a defund mask, when people are wearing the shirt uh, that says abolitionist, how are we following it up with the deep organizing work um, that's necessary? Yep. All of it. It's, it's so, that's why I'm like the invest divest model offers us a lot of opportunity, right? Cause mm-hmm. you know, I think of Ruth Wilson Gilmore's um, quote, right? Like we know abolition isn't just about absence. It's like, where are those life-affirming institutions and where are they present, right? And if they're not, mm-hmm. where do we build them? You mm-hmm. know, and to your point, I think of comrades here in Miami that have been holding that shit down and like been yeah. in praxis, right? I think of Dr. Mm-hmm. Armin Henderson, who just worked with the Dream Defenders, who's mm-hmm. been doing a stop the bleed 
um, training, right? For everyday folks, right? Like, how do we actually deal with wounds? How do we deal with gunshots Mm -hmm. and all of the, like, all of these things so that we don't have to, you know, then take it to a criminal institution where you're actually seeking healthcare and then it becomes something very different, right? What, like, what do these de-escalation trainings look like and how do we practice those skills with our families, you know, when someone maybe has had a little bit too, too much to drink and I'm like, it's like, fam, you, you out of it right now? How can we support you? How can we like actually bring this down, right? Like we know that shit happens all the time. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. All these, all these opportunities that we have to actually be abolitionists, right? Beyond mm-hmm. just the mask, right? Beyond the slogan, beyond the IG bio, you know, beyond these things that just mm-hmm. feel really good, and don't take that deep, deep, long, slow work of transformation, of experimentation, of getting things wrong, of just like trial and error, you know, all the in between. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm thinking, you know, it is a new year and I, I really want to, you know, a new year, but conditions are not necessarily new. Conditions have not shifted as we know. Um, and for a lot of our folks, we know conditions have worsened, right? And the, the uncertainty remains deep and omnipresent. But I am, I'm wondering for you, kind of how you're navigating your projects, how you're sort of prioritizing, you know, what what takes president right now, what takes your effort, your labor. What are some sort of seeds you're sowing for this new year? Like, what are some commitments you really want to be in deep practice? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. No matter what, I want to be deeply in my integrity and I want to be deeply in my political values. Um, and so, yeah, I am, of course, oh, that sounds narcissistic, but I, I, due to the Levi's, um, due to that, due to the Levi's collaboration, a lot of different folks are approaching me for uh, opportunities for de- design. And for me, the thing that I have to see a clear connection between my values and um and the work and the opportunity. And so like right now I am working with uh, Me Too and Wisdom Fashion House to uh, design a shirt for Sexual Assault Awareness Month um, and basically a a storytelling campaign around patriarchal violence um, and, and being a disruptor of sexual assault and being a disruptor of patriarchal violence and rape culture. Um, and so, yeah, the, I feel like the seeds that I'm sowing is how can I use design um, and storytelling as, as organizing opportunities um, to move large groups of people on their values around the different things that I care about, largely patriarchal violence, um, specifically survivors of sexual assault, especially Black women, cis and trans survivors of sexual assault, um, and and other just expansive uh, opportunities to really illustrate my values, quite literally. Uh, that's what I deeply care about. <laughs> I love it. Um, yes, 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 yes. Um, you know, Fresco, there's there's a lot of reasons for us to 
want to feel deeply pessimistic, right? Like, uh-huh. you know, we we in an upwards battle. We've inherited a very complicated struggle. Yes. Um, and these are quite literally very unprecedented times. But mm-hmm. what is, you know, what's bringing you joy? What does healing look like and feel like right now for you? Um, what's bringing me joy? This is going to... I don't know if this I I was gonna preface it like this is gonna sound horrible, but it actually isn't horrible. Um, what's bringing me joy is how many black people are returning to uh, collecting gold uh, and and using um, and there's just a way that I feel like I think in apocalyptic moments when it fe- when when the world is serving apocalypse, it's giving. It's giving end. Um, it's giving Octavia Butler. Um, there's a comfort that uh, folks find in nostalgia, uh, and I think that that is one of the reasons why um, one thing that people know me as more intimately is a collector of uh, of gold uh, and <laughs> and jewelry. Uh, that's my deep hobby and love, uh, and so. I get so many questions around like how to make my first gold purchase, what to buy, where to buy it and things like that. And there's just a way that I think this generation um, and the future generations of young black people miss the way thing where the way heirlooms were passed down um, from previous generations. Um, and because I would say because of the drug war, um, because of capitalism and all these things, we a lot of us didn't get to retain some of the heirlooms passed down throughout our families. Like a lot of our moms and our aunts and our grandmas, uh, really beautiful pieces of art, pieces of culture got pawned so families could stay afloat. Uh, I remember that pawn shop reality TV show when I was a kid, and it truly was a horror story for me. I was like, do you see all these black people getting rid of all the things that they passed down throughout their family? And then these white people like open up a whole storage facility of like marginalized families things and just start passing them off. And you think I feel entertained by you telling me how much money you got from these lifelong pieces. And so I think gold is one of those things um, that have has been lost um, to black and brown folks through capitalism that young black people are figuring out within their budgets and within their capacity that they're returning to. And I think it's really beautiful that every, everybody's gold doesn't uh, turn in the shower anymore. <laughs> and so, yeah, that's really bringing me a lot of joy. Um, just very simply, I think uh, politically, young Black folks across this country organizing around defunding the police and actually winning. Um, there's a lot of sadness in this world. And a lot of young Black folks had a lot of brave conversations with their local city councils, with their local government, and reallocated funds from the police department, from the school, um, the SROs, the student resource officers, um, divested funds, successfully organized to divest funding from policing in their communities and put it towards uh, pandemic response and put it towards um, different resources that Black folks need. I think the last thing would be the uh, deep level of mutual aid that Black folks have been able to do 
um, across the country to support each other um, and demonstrate that this is the care, this is the culture of care that we expect from uh, a government of a of a body of governance that the state is not providing. So that we, so we have to actually provide that for ourselves. And oh, one more thing that's really making me happy. Uh, <laughs> a lot of things, a lot of a lot of joy. Mm. Um, storytelling. I think Black folks on TikTok and on social media have been able to have really carried us through um, a pandemic by creating creating content uh, that tells a story that connects. Uh, marginalized folks, connects Black folks and connects marginalized identities uh, across experience uh, to build collective relationship, to say like, we're going to get each other through this. Um, But yeah, I think people have been creating a lot of good content. Yes. Care, love, mutuality, Mm -hmm. returning to our stories, Mm -hmm. expanding the stories, Yep, that's that's a lot of what we're gonna need to kind of continue push. You know, we gotta keep pushing. Um, Fresco, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk to me, let me in a little bit, let folks in a little bit around, you know, what's driving you. You know, what's the story behind all of these dope ass pieces <laughs> that people just be rocking. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm really I'm really grateful to be in conversation with you, to be in movement with you more largely. I'm also really excited to sort of see all the manifestations of like your imagination and Mm -hmm. what that's going to look like throughout this year and years beyond. But yeah, I think, you know, you're, you're starting off the year pretty strong. (laughs) (laughs) So excited to see where we go from here um, and what that looks like, what that feels like. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for um, making this space for me to talk about this. And I really admire your work and how you talk about these things for a while. And so, yeah, I'm really honored to actually be on this podcast and talk to you and be in conversation with you today. Uh, and it's really good and refreshing to talk to um, another artist and another uh, person that deeply cares about how we are organizing culturally, how are we using art, design, all of these anchors um, to actually mobilize and move our people. Yeah. Yes. The new world's coming. It is. (laughs) Thank you.